Everybody, my name's June Clinton. I am a member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Well, it's really nice to be here, and i got to find my note here that tells me to say my name and their name. And I want to thank the committee for inviting me over here uh, to Maryland. It's the first time I've ever been over here. I want to thank Madeline and Carol and Karen, and like John was saying a while ago, I got off that airplane and they hollered, June, and I, they, you know, they spot us somehow. They, they just do. And um, there was a nice gift basket in my room. Um, I, always, I always like to give a special thanks to the tapers, Dico Tape in this instance, Dick and Peggy Martin. And, because I tell you right now, the tapes have carried me through very, very many dark, dark days. And they do carry a great message, and it is a great privilege always to get to see them. Let's give everybody a round of applause. I belong to a little group down in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Traditions Al-Anon group we meet on Wednesday night. That's my home group. I'm committed to that home group. And because of the 12 steps and the fellowship of this program, the material that we have, the tapes that we listen to, Places like this I get to come to in strong sponsorship. I haven't been finding it necessary to mind somebody else's business since August 1987. And my family would certainly like for me to thank you all for that. And then I tell you what, I walked in here this morning and I spotted two of my favorite people in the world, Paul and Juanita. Me and Paul got to spend a weekend, uh, and Juanita was there, up in um, <laughs> Cook's Forest a few, summer, a few years back. And he became one of my favorite people, and he'll never know the impact he had on my recovery uh, when the days really got dark for me. When my boy laid in the streets, I listened to Paul, and I thought about Paul, and I thought about people like him that I've heard. The people in Alcoholics Anonymous have been so instrumental in my recovery because that's where I got my hope. If they could make it, then, then my kids could make it. I grew up in a little farm town down there at uh, Bixby, Oklahoma. It's just right down the road from Tulsa. My daddy was a farmer. Um, my daddy made a good living. I have one sister. My mama stayed home and took care of us. My daddy was able to provide for us anything we uh, needed, pretty near anything we wanted. Uh, I grew up in a home of privilege where there was no alcohol, there was no abuse, there was no cigarette smoking, no cussing, no kicking, no screaming, there wasn't nothing. We went to church. We went to church every time the doors opened. I'm a product of Southern Baptist upbringing. And that ain't the reason I'm here, but I mean, it didn't help none. But by the time I was 17 years old, I was sick and tired of it. I was sick and tired of being uh, my people being so strict on me, and I was sick and tired of going to church all the time. My people walked with their heads proud in that community. Their word meant something. They were prominent members of that community. So, shoot, I just married into another family that was well-known in that community. And they, they had newspaper articles wrote about them. They, uh, they had a lawyer on retainer. They killed one another. They had a whiskey still. They had... Uh, they cussed, they fought, they had beer. Uh, their mama read True Confession magazines. My mama didn't allow one of them in our house. Uh, that was the most exciting thing I ever, it was just like daylight and dark. I thought I died and went to heaven. I moved out there on that hill with that young man. He was, I was 17, he was 18. 
Nine months, 11 days after I married that man, I had my first baby. That was Regina. 17 months later, I had Pat, and 17 months later, I had Mike. My life turned into things I never, ever dreamed about. I, I never, ever suspected that I would be capable of doing and becoming the kind of person I became. My husband was a violent drunk. He whipped me like a dog. He beat me, and he beat me bad. Uh, I joined the honky-tonk crowd. I run with him whenever I was able. I laid out in them honky-tonks, left my children wherever I could find to, lay, to leave them. And every now and then I'd pick up my little old kids at ever how many I had at the time, and I'd go on back home to mom and daddy. My people mm -hmm. were financially able and more than willing to take care of me, and that's the sad part about that story. I didn't have to live like that. I'd go back to my church from time to time, and I'd pray, and I'd promise God the things that we do. And I lived like that for eight years, and I became trash, pure trash. I, I, I just did everything that I had been taught not to do. I trampled on the laws of the land and the laws of God, and I became miserable. And one day, my daddy said to me, if you want to come on back home now, June, I got a house right across the field from the big house where my daddy lived, alfalfa field, separated us. And I was ready. I'd been living like that for eight long years. And my people were not one bit tickled about me and my trashy lifestyle and my fast living. And my daddy moved me down there in that little old house and he watched me like a hawk. Because I had embarrassed my family. I had, I had not been a good mother. I had not been a good wife. I had done all the things I never thought I'd do. Daddy moved me down there in that little old house. And Daddy didn't believe in women working, and I didn't have no way to make a living. I had not—I had finished high school, and that was all. And um, my Daddy didn't cotton to women working. He thought women needed to stay home and take care of their families, so my Daddy gave me a job. My job was stay home and take care of them babies. And he put money in my bank account every week for me to stay home and take care of my kids, and he watched me. And I knew it was over for me. I knew that I was about 25 years old. I knew there wasn't a way in the world I'd ever get a man. Down there at Leonard, I, I live at Leonard. It's about um, said five or six miles down the road from Bixby. There's about 200 people live down there at Leonard, and um, all of them were older. Took <laughs> it wasn't a way in the world I was going to get a man in a crowd like that. So I just kind of resigned myself to this was it. But God does things for us that we can't do for ourselves, and He moved this cowboy in a section over from where I live, and He rode horses and trained horses for a living. I grew up riding horses, and my little boy was riding horses. My little two little boys were riding horses. And they'd ride across the section to see Carl, and, and I, I put the water can in the back end of Mama's car, and I hauled water from Carl's well. Now, my daddy said to me, how come you're hauling water from over there at that boy's well? And I said, well, it makes better coffee than mine does. <laughs> my daddy, he didn't believe that, but anyway... He told me to stay away from that boy, so I'd go over there and I'd haul the water and get my kids to come home and I'd wave at Carl and Carl would wave at me. And I thought he was absolutely the cutest thing I'd ever seen in my life. He, uh, he wore Wranglers and boots and, uh, and a good hat. And uh, he rode them horses and he was just a man after my own heart. And uh, he looked really good in them Wranglers. And uh, I'll tell you all what, he, he's 73 years old today. And, and he still looks good in them Wranglers. <laughs> Coming or going, it don't make a bit of difference. <clears throat> and uh, 
So I shined up to him, and he shined up to me a little bit, but there was no dating. So one night he called me about 11 o'clock at night, and he said, I need to come over and visit with you. He'd been in a wedding up at Tulsa. And he said, I need to come see you. And I said, well, hide your car, because Daddy catch you down here. We'll be in Big Tall Cotton. And so he uh, uh, he hid his car, and he come in, and he stood up there. I got up and put on my, all I ever wore was blue jeans and a sweat T-shirt. And I had my hair rolled up in them old pink foaming curlers, <laughs> one of them nets tied down over my head. And I got up to see what in the world he wanted, and he, he was all dressed up in his tuxedo thing, and he backed up against the stove there, and he said, Jim, he, he said, I've been watching you, and I've been watching them kids, and, um, and I've come over here to ask you if you'll marry me. And I said, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, <laughs> I mean, I didn't even think. <laughs> I was never tickled in my life, and, uh, and I'm not recommending that by any uh, You know, you don't. You don't do things like that, but I'm going to tell you all what, uh, that was August 1960. We're going to be married 43 years this August, so it worked for us. And I can tell you something else. That was through hell and high water a lot of times. That 43 years has been a struggle. But uh, anyway, we got married. He went up and told my daddy we was going to get married. My daddy told him he was a stark raving idiot. He said, uh, it costs a lot to keep them. And Carl said, I know it does, but I'm going to marry her anyway. And Carl had two little girls, and I had them three kids. We had two five and two six and one seven, and we got married. And um, and one of his little girls moved in the house with me and Carl and my three kids. And when my when we'd been married two years, Carl uh, went to court and petitioned for an adoption, and my my children's biological daddy gave them to him. So he adopted my three children. And we started out down there at Leonard, Oklahoma, on a little old bitty farm. And we started out full of hopes and dreams, and we started out doing all the things that we had been taught in our childhood to do. We started taking our children back to church and teaching them the, the values that we'd been taught. And we were doing really good. We were working like dogs. We all worked, and, um, and we rode some horses, and we showed some horses, and, and we did a few things like that, you know, to have a little fun from time to time. And, and um, uh, that natural family of mine... Children's was just down the road 10 miles, and um, I throwed my chest out. I was really proud and arrogant uh, about what I'd accomplished. I'd snared this man, and I had a good life, and I was leading a different kind of life, and, and I was really proud of myself. And so when Regina was, uh, well, let me just back up and say that uh, things began to happen up schoolhouse. Uh, my kids began to get in some trouble. My little boys was always creating a, a problem some sort or other. And I taught my kids to lie. I didn't aim to, but I did. I, I, I would just say things to them like, maybe if we don't tell your daddy. And they didn't want to tell their daddy uh, about uh, things that they were doing, getting kicked out of school, and I'd go up and smooth it over. And, um, and we had an airplane, and, uh, and my youngest, my oldest boy, Pat, he soloed when he was 16, and um, he'd come in in the afternoon getting that airplane take off, and, and he told me he was going practicing. But I found out that he was going up schoolhouse. The principal called and said he was coming up schoolhouse and loading kids up one at a time, taking them riding in that airplane, and that had to stop. Well, we sure didn't want Carl to know nothing about that, so we didn't tell that part. And um, I kind of picked and chose what I told, uh, which if they did good, I told. If they did bad, I kept it quiet. And so mostly I kept things quiet because they didn't do a whole lot of good. Well, when Regina was uh, about 15, she went to a party up, to, up Bixby, and the lady called and said, we're going to have to come after her, that she was up there in, this, in the town drunk. And Carl went to get her, and Carl was real high-tempered, and Carl was really mad. And um, he brought her home, and he, he just kind of slung her down in that rocking chair, and the chair flopped, and she flopped. And, 
And Carl called her a sorry little tramp. And uh, and something happened to me that night that I, I never dreamed would happen to me with that man. I absolutely adored this man. But something happened, and I, I began to feel that resentment way down deep inside me, and I carried it with me for many years. And even after I came to you all, I carried that with me. And I began to find somebody to blame for the things that was going wrong in my family, and, and it had to be him. It had to be Carl. It was so important for me to find somebody to blame. And, and another thing that was so important to me was it wasn't about what we were. It was about what I could make you think we were. And I worked real hard to make you all think that we were really something. We went to the right church. We went around with the right kind of people. We drove the right kind of car. We did all the things that were right. We showed the good horses, and we had the big horse trailer, and we did all those kind of things, and we looked all right. But things were beginning to get a little bit a little bit squirrely down there at my house. And we stood over here in Washington, D.C. one year, and, and they gave us an award that said we was Farm Family of the Year. And there was some crazy stuff beginning to happen in my house. So the time come to send my children to, to college, and, um, and Regina was the first one to go, and we sent her off up to a little old college up north of Tulsa. And, and she come home in the summer of 1971, and she lived in an apartment in Tulsa. And one night, about 2 o'clock in the morning, the the uh, phone rang and it was the law and they said they had arrested my daughter on a drug charge and she was being held in Tulsa County Jail and uh, and about 5 o'clock that morning they come got my boy Pat so I got two kids locked up in Tulsa County Jail in the summer of 1971 in a little old farm community like Bigsby, Oklahoma nobody else had had that happen to them and I hung my head in shame and I did the only thing I knew what to do and that was go find my daddy my daddy had fixed me over and over and over with money my daddy could buy things and make me feel better. My daddy could buy me a new car and I felt better. My daddy would just give me some money for some new clothes or a new divan or just what, a television, anything. And I always felt better because he fixed me with money for a little while. And so I knew my daddy could fix this. So we went and got my mom and daddy. And we told them what had happened and it liked to kill them. It liked to destroy them because my mom and daddy had been so instrumental in helping me raise those little old children. And so... We went up to that Tulsa County Courthouse. Now, I told Carl how to act, and I said, now, do not go up there and act ugly, because Mom and Daddy don't know how ugly you can act, and I don't want them knowing how ugly you can act, so don't you go up there and act. Oh, shoot, he just went up there and acted ugly. <laughs> <laughs> I knew he would. <laughs> he didn't disappoint me. He always acted ugly when I wanted him to act nice. And uh, So we got those kids out of that trouble. And in the fall of the year came, and it was time to send three of them off to college. And that was Pat and Mike and Carl's little girl, Sammy. And we sent three of them back off to college, and uh, we took Mike, and we moved to a ranch. We'd bought a ranch place, a pretty sizable place down in Okmulgee County. We bought it purely to speculate on. And um, because our head hung so far in shame, and we were so disgraced in that little community and in our church and around the people that we knew, and uh, we moved. We just packed up that one kid and we left and we went down the road about 20 miles to that ranch. Now that ranch was a place that I absolutely loved. I worked like a dog on that ranch and I loved it. I'd rather scoop manure out of a horse stall than anything I ever did in my life. That's, I loved to keep a barn clean and I liked to fool with them horses and we ran steers for a living and me and Carl worked those steers together. We received them, doctored them, shipped them, did the whole nine yards, mowed the hay, baled the hay, rode the horses, did everything we had to do. And we were good partners, but it was getting where we couldn't talk about them kids. Because Carl saw it like it was, and I refused to look. Those kids all began to drop out of college like flies. Regina finally did make it uh, to become a nurse. And uh, Pat, I, he just kind of flew the coop. And, um, 
And Mike was running uh, the road, rodeo and, and showing horses, and he began, and the drinking was really getting big and bad in my, uh, with my children. And I, I had to blame somebody, so I blamed Carl. And I said things to myself, like if he was, if he was their real daddy, he wouldn't act like that. Because see, Carl would act ugly. Carl would step, we lived right up in the middle of the section, Carl would step right out in the middle of that road when he'd see them boys look coming, and he'd say, you get the hell off my land. And he'd run them off. And that feeling would come up again in the, deep down in my belly. Well, I had to do my deal. And my deal was, me and them kids, we had things planned out. they go down the roadsway and hide down there in the thicket of bushes, little old trees, and I'd go down there, and I'd take my pocketbook with my money, and I'd take my finger in their face. And I'd hand them the money with one hand and my finger in their face, and I'd say, now I'm going to give you this money this time, but you better promise me that you won't go back in that beer joint no more ever again. And they promise. They promise. <laughs> and I'd give them the money, and I'd keep talking till they got in the car and drove off, and, and then next day or two we was doing it all over again. I, I'd drive past a beer joint up there in Tulsa one day, and I saw Pat's pickup sitting there. And I went in, and I'll tell you all right now, it was my first experience in a topless bar. And I, I walked in, and I was never so shocked in my life. There sat that kid right up on the front row, just goofier, and just a dying of laughing. And I jerked his hind end out of there, and I gave him some money and made him promise me he wouldn't go back in that beer joint. And I got in the car and left, and I bet you a dollar bill he didn't see the taillights of my car go away, and he was right back in there gawking again. And I probably don't blame him. I would have been, too, if I'd have been him. But anyway... That's how I operated. I fixed mirror. I bought mirrors and beer joints. I paid rent. I paid. I picked up bad checks. I got them out of jail. I never did any of those things without giving them that talk. I always gave them that talk. I always made them promise. And what I know about that today is my kids didn't set out to lie like dogs to me, because I didn't set out to lie like a dog. I never told my husband I was doing this kind of stuff. He didn't ask. I didn't tell. And if he'd have told, I'd have lied. And I was just. It was just that my kids was. My kids were alcoholic, and they had to have what they had to have, and I was the goose that was laying the golden egg, and I was enabling my children to drink nearly to the depths of hell. I'm the kind of mother that will destroy her children. I'm the kind of mother that's capable of killing her kids. And if you're in here today, mama, daddy, grandma, grandpa, whoever you are, if you're enabling them in any fashion, you're liable to kill them. It's a thousand wonders I didn't kill all three of mine, and myself included, and Carl. Because like John was saying this morning, there were many times when that thought of murder and suicide come through my head for me and him. I, I got to the point I couldn't stand it anymore. There would be, uh, there would be holidays. Shoot, I'd rather seen a passel of snakes coming crawling after me than to know it was going to be Christmas. Because I had to get busy. I had to get out there. And now Regina... She usually would show up looking pretty good. She'd been married two or three times. She'd had two or three live-in deals. She always had somebody around that was kind of helping her support her, her, her deal. And, and she'd show up looking pretty decent, and she always had a little present. And, and remember, outside things are real important to me. Material things are real important to me. So I didn't want you to come into my house for Christmas without bringing a present. Well, I had to get out and find Pat and Mike. I mean, that was a given. I had to find them, and I had to clean them up, and I had to give them a little money, and I had to make them promise that they wouldn't do that no more. And I, I would never, ever could figure it out. You know, I kept my boys in good boots and good hats and good jeans. I made them keep on wearing them. 
kind of clothes, get them earrings out of your ear, get that necklace off your neck, I mean, straighten yourself up. Your daddy ain't going to have that, and you know it. You can't come down there looking like that. And I'd give them all this talk and give them this money and fix them all up, and then I'd go find them, and they'd look weird again, and I'd say, well... <laughs> Well, what went with your good stuff I brought you? Well, they said, somebody steals it, Mama. Somebody steals our stuff. And I believed it. I believed for years that somebody was literally taking the clothes off my kids' back. And what they were doing with it, I did not know. But I knew they were replacing it with some really weird-looking stuff. So I had to make them promise they'd be there. And then I had to go by. I said, don't worry about it. I'll get the presents because I knew they wouldn't go get the presents. So I go get the presents and I'd buy something for their daddy and something for their grandma and grandpa. And I'd disguise my handwriting and I'd write in there to daddy with a whole lot of love from Pat and Mike. And it was, wasn't a bad deal because every now and then I'd run into something I wanted for myself and I'd just buy it and I'd write on there to mama with a whole lot of love from Pat and Mike. And then I'd show everybody, you know, what that boys bought me. And then my job was to watch for them when they got there. I had to go tell them what I got and do all the stuff so they wouldn't look like idiots. And, um, and then I had to watch Carl. Now, my husband is not a mental midget, not by any stretch of the imagination. And my husband would look at that book, and he would slam it shut, and a look of disgust and sickness would come over that man's face. And I would look at him, and I would say in my heart, well, he wrote my Christmas one more time. It was always his fault. Always his fault. I blamed that man and blamed him and blamed him where there was no measure of blame. But I had to find somebody to, to blame, and it was him. Well, things dropped along like that, and, and uh, I decided to uh, get Pat to join the Army. I thought the Army would fix him. And so I got him to join the Army, and he went off to the Army, and he went off to Germany, and he, they only kept him a couple of years. And, um, and they sent him home with a letter that said he had a heroin addiction. And um, I remember the day I received that letter and how I fell on my knees and I started praying, because I'm a praying woman. I, always, I prayed a lot, but I didn't know how to pray till I came to y'all. And I made bargains with God, if you'll do this, I'll do that. And if you'll do this, I won't ever do that no more. And I thought God was punishing me for my trashy life that I had lived that eight years. And, and I was trying to get good, and I was trying to get everybody else good. And, and I was doing all the best I knew how, and, and nothing was working. So I knew that, that Pat and, them and, and Carl were going to act really ugly. And I was always right in the middle of all that stuff. You know, when you're just right in the middle, you, you just someone just pulling and pulling and pulling at you. And, and you want to have some loyalty here, and you want to have some loyalty there, and, and, and nothing's working. So I decided the best place for me to be was in the hospital. And uh, so I got my doctor to put me in the hospital for, uh, I just needed eight days. And, uh, I, and, and I, need, I said, just take me up there and run me a bunch of tests. See if you can figure out what's the matter with me. And uh, he was a good friend of ours, and he knew kind of what was the matter with me. And, and he'd say, uh, June, you want to talk about it? And I'd say, no, no, everything's just fine down there at the house. Just come on down, we'll cook a pot of beans, and we'll have big dinner. And, Come on down and have dinner with us. Everything's fine, Tom. Everything's fine. Well, everything wasn't fine, and uh, it was. Uh, I was miserable, uh, wreck. I weighed about 100 pounds. I, uh, I'd had two back surgeries. I, uh, my neck had gone haywire. I had a heart problem. I had an ulcer problem. I, I looked really pitiful and wanted to look really pitiful. I wanted to make sure everybody knew that my life was not a bed of roses, and, um, and I was just crazy. I was just doing all this crazy stuff. So Tom put me in the hospital, ran tests, because I knew I'd be safe up there. I knew there ain't no way in the world that kid and that man going to come up there and act ugly over the bed of a dying woman. I knew I'd be safe in that hospital. So I piled up in that bed for eight days. They ran tests. They didn't find nothing wrong with me. But while I was up there, I got busy because I was always busy thinking, thinking. So I got busy, and I got Pat a job at a feedlot out in Calipatra, California, and I shipped him off out there. And I thought it was a pretty good deal, so I just sent Mike off out there too. And um, and they stayed a while, but uh, but they sent him back. You know, it... 
It don't make any difference where I sent them boys. They always sent them back. Army sent them back. Wife sent them back. Job sent them back. People sent them back. I, they always wound up coming back to me. And I, one more time, I've got to try to figure out what to do. And I was just, uh, I was just crazy. And I tell you what. If you had watched me operate in those days, if you had watched me, you would have said, somewhere there's a village being denied as idiot, because that's just how... (laughs) I was busy. I was really busy. Mike called me up one day and told me he's going to kill himself. He's up Tulsa. And I said, wait till I get there. I knew I could fix it if I could just get there. So I take my pocket full, my pocketbook full of money. I always kept a stash of money. I always kept my pocketbook ready. And I got up there and I and I told him, you know, what would it take? How much money would it take for you not to shoot yourself? And he priced it and I paid him. And he didn't do it. And I put him in an old rattly trap pickup and sent him off up here to Marietta, Ohio, where he married a girl. And uh, and he got worse and he got worse and he got worse. My pad had got married while he was out in California and his drinking and drugging progress and he had a little girl and, and it got, uh, and I took responsibility for that little family. I helped raise that little girl and I took care of her and I took care of the mother and I bought them all the things I thought they needed so they wouldn't talk about Pat and they would stay there and take that abuse. And, and so, uh, me and Carl was down there on that ranch and oil prices went down and the coal mine was dug up and the interest went up and we were running them steers and they weren't making any money and high dollar horses was getting in our pocket real hard and me and Carl got in a financial bind and we had to sell that place and that lifestyle that I absolutely loved because we drug horses from California to Florida and I had, we had to sell that place and we had to move and in order to pay off our debts and I blamed Carl. And it wasn't all Carl's fault. A lot of it maybe was, but it wasn't all Carl's fault. There was the, it was, it was the, the times, and I was instrumental in it. And, and but I blamed him. It was only him that was, that was to blame for that. So we had to move. We moved up to a little place closer up to Tulsa, a little five-acre place, and we were building a horse barn up there. And, and down on that ranch, we had 19 stalls, indoor and outdoor arenas up there. We had an outdoor round pen. We had eight stalls, and we were building and fixing up the best we could. And one day, Pat was flying spray planes for a living. And one day, we were up there on a Sunday afternoon, and we heard that plane coming. And uh, we stepped out and looked, and sure enough, it was Pat. And it looked like he was going to crash her right into that barn. And, and my husband looked it up, and I never f- will forget the look on that man's face, and I hope I never forget the look on that man's face. As he looked up at that airplane, and he said, you know what, June, that boy's going to kill himself in that plane because he's drunk. And then another thing I hope I don't ever forget is that arrogance that I had and the self-righteousness that I had as I looked at him and said, I'd like for you to tell me how you know. He's up there and you're down here. Now, how do you know so blooming much? And he said, oh, Jim, why don't you get your head out of the sand? He's drunk and he's going to die doing this if you don't get some help. Well, that night, long about 9 o'clock, that we were still down on the ranch and, and, and that phone rung and it was Pat. And he said, Mama, I need some help. And he called the right fellow because I was always prepared. Uh, Regina had married into a family of people up there in Tulsa that the daddy had drank for years and years and lost an oil business on account of it. And, and, uh, and she uh, had told me about him. And he had gone to a treatment center and he had gone to something called ANA. And so I knew about that. And so when Pat called me, he said, I need some help, Mama. And I said to him, well, won't you go down to Grandpa's tonight? Because his wife had kicked him out. And I said, you go down to Grandpa's and stay tonight, and I'll come get you tomorrow, and I'll take you someplace, and we'll get you fixed up. And when I hung the phone up, Carl looked at me and said, what was it about? And I said, nothing. You see, we couldn't talk about them kids. We could talk about, we could work like dirty dogs out there. We could work, and we could partner in every area of our life. 
but we couldn't talk about them kids. And as the years progressed, it was just like what John was talking about this morning. I knew what he was talking about when he said they live like strangers, and I know you all know it. Because me and Carl, the man that I absolutely adored, somebody that I thought had absolutely walked on water, and I loved him like Peter loved the Lord, and I had got to the point where it had turned into almost nothingness. There wasn't no quarreling and fighting and fist fighting and stuff like that. It was just kind of nothingness. And that's a bad way to have to live. Time to time I'd pick up my stuff and I'd leave. And I'd think I couldn't live with him any longer, but I always would come back. And I'd try again. And our life was just turmoil. Our life was just turmoil. And it was almost destroyed. See, I suffer from a disease called alcoholism because it came into my home. And alcoholism is a family disease. And it destroyed my family. It was destroying my family, picking us off one by one. Taking away our, our, our values and our morals and bankruptness in every area. The joy of living was being taken away from us because of a disease called alcoholism and I didn't drink. I know what John was talking about this morning when he talked about his wife and how she did all the crazy things she did stone cold sober. I did that way too. I remember one time Johnny Harris said to me, why didn't you drink? I tried. It didn't do any good for me. I puked and so I give it up. I mean, it was a... It was just, you know, I would love to have been able to have done something to ease that pain, but nothing happened. Nothing worked for me except more, more puking and more whatever. Well, anyway, I, I go down the next morning, and I pick Pat up, and I called his wife up, and I said, you get up out of bed, and you get your best dress on. We're going uptown, and we're going to put Pat in the treatment center and get him joined up with that A&A. So I got, I got hold of him. He didn't look very good, and so I decided I'd clean him up and make him look better. So, of course, I put him on some different clothes. His hair was real long, and, and I made him go get his hair cut. And, and I got him in the car, and I told him what to say. And I said, now, when you get up there, don't go in there telling them about how ugly your daddy acts. Don't go in there and tell about that and tell about how we about broke and we had to sell our place. You go in there and tell them about your grandpa's got lots of money and your mom and daddy lived down here on a great old big ranch and how we had all these high-dollar horses and we were farm family of the year. Don't forget that. Tell them all that kind of stuff. And then I said to myself, they won't any more get that right than a spook. So I'll just go tell them myself. So I just marched right in there. And I stood right up in that counselor's face and I told him about us. And he listened to me for about five minutes and dismissed me and told me I did not need to come back. Well... <laughs> I went home. I didn't tell Carl he could go up there because I didn't want Carl going up there. I didn't want this stuff to come out. I didn't want people saying what they really felt. I wanted us still to pretend to be what we are not. And so I didn't tell Carl he could go. I went from time to time, but I didn't go very much. And, uh, but I'll tell you what happened up there. My kid got up there in that old treatment center. It's not up there anymore. And that old treatment center that was up Tulsa in the summer in March of 1984 was a treatment center that believed in the... Uh, program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They kept my boy up there for about 30 days and they told him while he was there he had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And they not only told him he had to go, they told him where to go. And they told him he had to go out on the west side with a bunch of old toughs that had been out there for a long, long time. And they got him out there and they assigned him with a sponsor and his name was Leo and Leo's dead today. And Leo told my boy right straight off the bat that he wasn't one bit impressed that that boy could fly an airplane or had been to college a little bit or that his grandpa had some money or that he was farm family of the year kid. None of that stuff impressed Leo. Leo said, I'm going to tell you something, boy. You stay green and grow, and one of these days you can celebrate 30 years like I just got to do it. I'm going to tell you something, folks. My boy hung with that group. Thank God my boy fell in with a group like that. My boy hung with that group, and because of that group of people in that little program up there in Tulsa of Alcoholics Anonymous, on the 19th day of March, this past March, 
My boy was handed his 19-year chip, and it's because of people like you and the message that you carry. And, now, and, and my little girl, they fished her out of a swimming pool right after that, and she landed right up there with that same old bunch. And, and the ninth day of December this year, that little girl's going to get her 19-year chip. And it's in spite of their mama. It's because of people like you. So I got these two little sober kids, and they start coming home, and they start bringing people with them that are impressing the far out of me. They ain't people like I've been growing up with around the church. They're people that's got something a little extra different here. They don't care what you look like. They don't care if you got any money. They don't care if you've been in the penitentiary. They don't care where you've been. You're doing things today that are right. You've got compassion for folks. You're not judging. You're doing all these things. And I'm impressed like everything with these folks. And I thought, shoot, if I just drank, I'd join them. But I, <laughs> but I didn't, and I couldn't. And so my kids, when, immediately when they got out of that treatment center, the first thing they did, they went and got me a book called The Big Book. And they brought The Big Book to me, and they told me I need to read The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, I'd be happy to read it. I wanted to know about this disease that they said my kids had. So I read the book, and I found things in that book. Why well, I saw what was wrong with Carl. It said it, <laughs> it said he was in full flight from reality or else was mentally defective, and I wrote his name right out there beside it. Because I, it said in there, lack of power is my dilemma. Well, that was him. He wanted to boss everybody around, and that was his problem. It talked in there about we couldn't the lack of being not being able to get honest was what caused you to drink. Well, I put their name beside that because they lied like dogs. And so I read the book and I put it up on the shelf. I marked off who, who I thought it reminded me of, and I put the book up. Then here they come, and they said, "Mama, we need to sit down and talk to you." And I said, "Okay." I thought they're going to thank me for all I've done for them. <laughs> and they said, "Mama, you you need to go to Al-Anon. And I said, "What?" You have got to be kidding. I'm the one. I'm the one that bought that kid's clothes. I'm the one that paid your wife's rent. I'm the one that took care of your bad checks. I'm the one that did this. I'm the one. I told them all the things, and I remembered every one of them. And I told them all the things I had done for them. And I said, you want somebody to go to something called Alnon? go out there at the barn and tell your daddy. He's the one that acted like the horse's rear end. And they said, no, Mama, it's you. <laughs> And I said, I don't believe I will. I don't believe I will. And so I didn't go. And I watched my kids' lives begin to change. And I'm going to tell you something. Things begin to take a change in my house. See, there was healing. There's healing in my home today. There's absolutely wonderful divine healing in my home today. And, but it didn't happen like that. And it didn't happen when someone walked up and said, I'm sorry. Because, see, we had all heard, I'm sorry. How many times had you heard it? It didn't cut it no more. I'm sorry. It didn't cut it no more. I love you, and I'm sorry. That didn't cut it no more. What happened was lives began to change. And when people's lives began to change and their old ways were no longer their, saint, their, their ways that they always turned back to, then, then we saw the healing take place, and it began to happen with me and Carl. And I began to see that things could be different, and I wanted things to be different, and things got somewhat different in that short little period of time. And three years went by. And I refused to go to Al-Anon. And I still kept hanging around the AA people all I could. And I would go and listen. And my children, my pat began to bring me tapes. And then one of the first tapes he ever brought me was a tape by an old Indian man, John the Indian. And, Lord, I had it memorized. I listened to it over and over and over. It meant a lot to me. But it, I didn't get the message. And so 
Uh, it was in the, in the summer, and I called up in Ohio. Mike, uh, I forgot to tell you about Mike. He went off there up in Ohio, and he got up there, and he called me up one night, and he said, um, this was before my kids got sober. Mike called me up one night, and he said, Mama, guess what? He said, a man come over here today, and he's been, pr he's been praying with me all day long, and I've been on my knees, and Lord saved my soul, and I'm going to go up here to this Bible college, and I'm going to become a preacher. Now, Mike had told me when he was 15 years old he wanted to be a preacher, and I laughed at him, but he said, I'm going to go up there and be a preacher. And I said, Mike, you can't be a preacher. You didn't even graduate out of high school. You were standing in the jailhouse when your bunch graduated. And he said, well, I don't make no difference. I'm going to do it. And he did. He went off up there to college, and he told him his story, and he cleaned up himself, and he, and he started preaching. He went to college there for a couple of years. He went to Belfast in Northern Ireland, went to school over there for a couple of years. He came out, and he went down Greenville, uh, South Carolina, and Bob Jones, and he went to school down there and got his degree, and he preached all over the country for a bunch of years. And all this time he's preaching, I got two kids drunk, and he's preaching, and I was pretty proud of him because I, I thought he had listened to his mama, and, and I, <laughs> the other two kids, if they'd just look at him, and they'd see that he listened, and maybe, and I took full credit for that. I never gave God any credit for that, and I didn't ask Carl if I could send the money for Mike to go to school on. I just took it and did it. It didn't make any difference if it was God's will or not. It was my will. And I was going to have what I wanted, and so I, I made a preacher out of my boy. And um, and people would come up and tell me how proud they was of uh, Mike, and and how proud they was of me. And I would just enjoyed that so much that they were proud. And uh, so I got all, I got this kid down there preaching, and and then then my other two kids finally got sober after a period of time. And uh, so then I uh, I called up in Ohio to see how the boy, the preacher boy, was doing. And the preacher at the big church up there where Mike was preaching said, June, I hate to have to tell you this, but Mike's drunk again. He got drunk, and he's been drunk ever since. And, um, so I didn't know what in the world to do, and it was on a Saturday, and I, I, I had an anxiety attack or something, I suppose, and they had to haul me to the hospital on Sunday. I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't talk. And, and uh, my daddy was scared to death. My daddy called Pat to come home from Arkansas. Pat moved down there by that time, was divorced, and was living down there working in a treatment center. And, uh, and he called Regina. She was still in Tulsa. And my kids came home, and they worked with me all day long in the hospital. And um, an evening came, and they sent me home because by then I could breathe and I could talk. And they sent me home, and my boy Pat called, sat me down, and he said, Mama, do you want to tell me? And I said, No. And he said, It's Mike. And I said, Yes. And he said, Is he drunk? And I said, Yes. And he said, I'm going to go get him. And Pat got on an airplane the next morning, and he... Uh, and he went up to Columbus, Ohio, and the preachers met him at the, at the airport, and they carried him down to Marietta, and he picked up my boy, and he brought him to a treatment center up there in Columbus, and my boy stayed in that treatment center for a couple of weeks, and he came out, and he was drunk again. And his little wife uh, called me, and she said, maybe if we could just come home. And I sent the ticket to, uh, to them to come home, and they came home to stay for a couple of weeks, and I was scared. And Pat and Regina was threatening him with his life. And I had by that time told Carl that Mike was drunk. And that was, I could have bit my tongue off easier than I could have told Carl that. And um, so it was a terrible two weeks. And the day arrived that I could take that kid and one more time send him far, far away. I always wanted to send him far, far away where I didn't have to look. I, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't do it. And uh, so I sent him far, far away one more time. And I put him on that plane, and I walked back out of that airport, and I, and I backed up against the wall there in Tulsa, and I just sat down on the floor, and I put my head down on my knees, and I sobbed like I'd put a corpse on that flight because, see, I, I, knew, I knew that day the gig was up. You know, I, 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 I'm not dumb. I, I knew I didn't have the power, and I didn't have 
the speech, and my daddy didn't have the money, and um, and I couldn't fix this boy. But I didn't quit trying that day. I, I didn't quit trying for a long, long time. I tried long after I came to you. But um, but I heard that little girl coming, and she ran down the corridor of that air, air, airport, and she got on that airplane, and she told her little brother and her little sister-in-law goodbye, and she came back, and she took me aside, and she sat with me about three hours that day, and she told me, the precious things that the people of Alcoholics Anonymous told her. See, children are supposed to learn at the knees of their mama, but I'm a mama that learned because two of my kids came to you and sobered up, and they taught me your ways. And so she said, Mama, this is where you're going to be willing and ready to go to Al-Anon, and this is where you're going to be willing and ready to surrender. And so... That was on Sunday, the last Sunday in August. The last Tuesday night in August of 1987, I stumbled into my first Al-Anon meeting. They told me to go to Oatmogee, Oklahoma, where there was a woman named Ramona, that Ramona would be my helper. And I got down there, and um, and I went in there for two reasons only, and that was to sober up that kid and get that Carl to mind me. And I knew if I could get those two things done, I didn't have anything else to worry about. And um, and I went in there that that meeting and, and what I what I know about myself now is I was in, I came in there and I was so full of self pity and so self centered and so self seeking and so driven by fear and so soul sick and I would have told you in a heartbeat there was nothing wrong with me see I had cleaned up my trashy ways I didn't run with a bad crowd no more I didn't lay out in beer joints no more I went to church all the time I had been on my knees and asked God to forgive me of my sins. I had cleaned up my act, I thought, in every area that it needed to be cleaned up in. But I didn't know what kind of a self-righteous, condemning person I was. I didn't know I sat in judgment on people just because of the kind of car they drove or the way they looked or the way they acted. I I was self-righteous to a degree that it was sickening. And I was arrogant and I was pride-driven and I didn't know that about myself. My heart was so black. And I didn't know that about myself. And I can tell you right now, I didn't want to learn that about myself. This has been one of the hardest journeys I've ever had. Because I had to quit worrying about how ugly Carl was and look at how ugly I was. And I was ugly, deep within. And those people said to me, there's only two things we need for you to do, and that's to be open-minded and be willing to be teachable. And I, and I walked out of that meeting knowing full well they couldn't do anything for me because I was just a step above those people. I, I was Farm Family of the Year, Mama. I was just a step above those people, and they couldn't help me. And so I knew I'd not go back. But my little old daughter, she said to me, Mama, promise me, just give them six weeks. Just give them six weeks. And I went back on that promise I made to her, and I've been going back ever since. And I would not, take, I would not trade anything in the world for this journey I have made with the people of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. My two sober children took me by the hand and took me to my first Al-Anon conference down on the lake in Oklahoma. And a woman stood up at a podium like this, and her name was Sue Drum, and she said, you've got to learn to say you could be right, and you've got to take recovery at home. So I went home armed with that little bit of information, and I waited, and I knew it wouldn't take long, and it wasn't no time till Carl vexed me. And when he vexed me, I looked square dab at Carl, and I said, you know what, Carl, you could be right. And poor old Carl, he liked to faint it. His, <laughs> his jaw fell about right here, 
And then I did the next thing they told me, which was to go pray. I got, went and hurried down the hall, got on my knees, and I prayed. And I said, Lord, shut my mouth. Shut my mouth. Somewhere I was beginning to get an inkling that my mouth was a cause of a great deal of trouble. And I, now I'd have prayed before that. I'd have said, Lord, now if you'll shut Carl up, I'll go out there and tell him what it is I know you want me to tell him. But I prayed, shut my mouth. And I started this journey, and I got me a sponsor, and Ramona became my sponsor, and I got to work with her for three years before she died. And she knew she was dying, and she put me in the hands of some old-timers, some black belt Al-Anons and some valuable AA people and Al-Anon people. And she told me to listen to these tapes and listen to these AA tapes and listen to these Al-Anon tapes and go to all these meetings. And she told me what to do, and she told me to go home. See, Ramona gave to me what was given to her. Don't mean no offense by none of this, but this is what was given to Ramona. She didn't have a cabinet full of Al-Anon books. She had the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous when she came. And she said, you take that book down and you start reading it, Jen, and you see if you can see anything in there that reminds you of you. I had to erase their name. You know, I had to go back and erase their name and mark it out. And I had to put my own because I saw myself in those pages. She told me to do what it says, I think it's on page 68, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, to say those prayers. And, to, and she told me to get on my knees every morning and recite that third step prayer and ask God to relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do as well. Take away my difficulties, Lord, that picture of them. May bear witness to those I might help of your love and of your power. And may I do your will always. She taught me those things from that book, and she laid the 12 and 12 of Al-Anon beside the 12 and 12 of AA, and she taught me those steps. And we went through them, and we worked through them, and, and I began to grow in this program. I began to grow spiritually, and I began to grow emotionally, and my home began to heal. And so I um, I come home from my meeting. Mike, he come home every now and then. He, would, he got off up here in West Virginia somewhere, and he got sober for about a year, and he'd come home. And he hung around home for about a year, and him and his daddy got some running dogs, and it was a good time. And we laughed, and we had fun, and Mike went to meetings. But I watched that disease call that boy, and I watched him leave one more time. And I watched that bottle take him and drive him to the depths one more time. And then I, and then he would, at, one, at once in a while, he would sober up a little while, and he moved off down to Dallas, and he hooked up down there with David and Gracie, and sometimes he would stay sober for a little while, and sometimes he would be uh, drunk and on the streets again. And it became a very hard time, and all this time I'm struggling trying to do what's right. And all this time I'm still trying to figure out what it is I can do. Because I did not give, give up that I could not fix this boy. My mind spun like a wheel. You know, it's just like this list that's as long as my arm. And I would try everything on that list. And when it would come to the last thing and it would say, try God, I'd think, oh, I believe I can fix it without that. And I'd go back and I'd start all over again. And I did that over and over and over and over. And I was going all the time and I was listening to what y'all were telling me, but I still was not able to trust. I was still not able to trust. And at times I doubted you and I doubted the books and I doubted my sponsor and I doubted my God. And I kept trying. And I came home from my meeting one night, and there sat Pat's car in that driveway. And, and I walked in, and it scared me to death because Pat's living down in Arkansas. And Carl was sitting there at the table, and the tears were rolling down that man's face. And I said, what happened? And he said, June, it's just I can't deal with this anymore. I don't know what to do. See, my husband don't drink me, don't go to Al-Anon. And he said, I had to call Pat to come home and talk to me. And Pat, my boy that had been run off a, a gajillion times off that ranch place he's sitting there and he's telling his daddy just like his sister told me 
the things that could help him, the things that he could trust, and the things he could believe in. He's telling what the people of Alcoholics Anonymous told him. And I started down the hall that night, and I said to them, you don't have to worry about it. I'm going to get up in the morning, and I'm going to go get down, and I'm going to get that boy, and I'm bringing him home, and I'm going to fix him. Come hell or high water, I'm going to fix that kid. And my pat said to me, Mama, before you go to bed, just sit down a minute. And he said to me, Mama, don't you know God don't need you up there doing his stuff? Don't you know by now God's got people to reach people? He don't need you up there fooling with that boy. You leave that boy in the hands of a loving God, and you go on about your business. And, and I said, he's going to die. And he said, he very well may. But you ain't responsible for it and you can't fix him, so you leave him alone. And I turned around and I looked and I saw for the first time what had happened to my husband and what I had done to him. I saw for the first time I'd stripped the dignity that that man walked with. I'd stripped every fiber of dignity he had from him with my, my hateful, self-righteous thoughts and words. I had slashed him. I had cut flesh with that man. And I had done it in a self-righteous attitude. And I look back at that man, and my, my, my God gave me the opportunity to see that. And I thought, you know what, June? You're on your knees saying that third-step prayer every day, and you ain't no more done it than a spook. See, I recited it every day. But there's a big difference. Reciting and action are two different things. And I got down on my knees that night, and I made an amends to my God. And I got on my knees in front of that man that I loved, and I told him I was sorry. And I have made an amends to that man on a daily basis ever since. And I do that like this. I stay out of his face. If, he's, if he wants to think something, he's got the dignity and the right to think it. I don't tell him anymore how to act when I see one of them coming. When I see one of them kids coming home, I don't go and say, now, Carl, act this way and act that way. I let him act however the world he wants to act. I talk to God about myself, and I talk to God about Carl. And you know what? It just blows my mind. That Carl is absolutely just acting so good it's not even funny. It's just, he doesn't have to be told anymore. I, let, I got off his back and out of his face and quit trying to make his decisions for him, and he is plenty smart enough to do it on his own. And so my boy kept on getting worse and worse, and, and I could go through all kinds of stories and tell you, but now when the phone rings and it's somebody that's telling us he's in jail down in Dallas or he's in a lockup or he's in an insane asylum or he's here and he's there, I don't have to look at Carl no more and say nothing. I can look at Carl and I can tell him it's about Mike and he's this or he's that. And then for some reason or other, I got started doing what I'm doing today. And I never asked for this job and I never solicited this job. It never crossed my mind that I would ever be standing in front of a bunch of people like this and talking and telling my story. Because, see, I know that I ain't that good. And I know there's people out here that can do a much better job than me. But God knew what he was doing because God sent me places like cooks for us, Paul. And I went up there and I stayed that week, a uh, few days up there, and I heard Paul talk. And Paul will never know how many times I listened to that story. Because, I, see, I'd get that hope. I'd go up there and I knew that my boy, I'd listen to people like Paul and people like Tom and people like John and all these people that would talk, these AA speakers. I wanted to hear these low-bottom drunk ones that had crawled out of a box or out from under a bridge or had been in a dumpster. And I listened to them kind of people. And, I, and somehow they were making it. And, and, I, and I kept listening. And I, my ears would perk up and I'd say, go ahead and say, your mama did it for you. Your mama. <laughs> they never said it. They never said it. And then one day it came to me, you know, it don't even say nothing in the Bible about Paul's mama when God rescued him on the road to Damascus. 
So I don't know what made me think it was me that was going to rescue my kids. But I listened and I listened and the hope sprung eternal in my life when I would hear these people. And I could one more time go home and I would leave my kid alone. And my boy wound up on the streets of Tulsa in the last, in the, in the year of 1999 and 2000, I think, in most of 2001. He laid in the streets and he laid in the jails and he laid in the missions and I left him alone. And it was the hardest thing I ever did in my life because I wanted to go get that boy and I wanted to bring him home and rock him and make him right. Make everything good and right in his life. And I had to watch that boy. And, I, and, and one day he called me and he said, Mama, could you come up here and pick me up off the street? He'd been on the streets and he'd been laying in a dumpster and I'd hear about it. I'd hear about him being in jail and I'd hear about him being in the mission. When he was in the mission, he would call me. And I would know he was in the mission, or even one time when he was in an insane asylum, they let him call me. I guess they don't call it insane asylums no more, whatever, that's what I call it. And anyway, and I would go and I would get to see him, and there would be that far, far away look in his eye. And, it, and, 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 it, and he'd been on the streets, and I hadn't heard anything from him in a long, long time. And, and I was doing the best I could, and I was, I was listening to you, and I was holding your hands, and you all were holding mine. And, and so, he called and he said, Mom, could you come up here and pick me up? He said, I can't stand it. I'm cold and I'm hungry. And I got in the car and I knew it wasn't the right thing to do, you know. I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. I got in the car because, see, my old ways are my first ways every time. And I got in the car and I, and I went to, up there on the street of Tulsa and I picked that boy up. And he got in the car and I sat there with him. And, and it was the saddest sight I think I ever saw in my life. And he was dirty and he had, he'd wet himself and he'd... His puked on himself, and his clothes had holes in it, and his hair was thick and dirty, and his beard was long, and he had long, he had far away look in his eyes, and um, and he stunk, and um, and I didn't ask him no promises. I didn't ask him to make me no promises, and we just sat there, the disease of alcoholism that two people were so affected with, me and him, and I'm doing what I can to recover, and he's doing what he can to kill himself. And all I could do for him that night, that day, I took him to an old motel and I paid the rent for two nights and I gave him 20 bucks and I knew what he would do with it. But it was what I had to do at the time. And I knew it wasn't right. And I come home and I called Gracie and I told her what I did. And she said, if you did what you thought you had to do, June. And I got on a plane and I went to a, a place like this and I listened to Tom I talk and, I, and one more time that hope came to me and I knew... I could do it one more day. See, I've been fighting this deal just like the alcoholic one day at a time. I've been one day at a time trying to keep my hands off my boy for all this time. And my boy got worse and he got worse and he laid in those streets and he was laying in those old crack houses and and we'd hear about it. And um, and one Wednesday, one night it was on a, it was in February and it was just beginning to sleep and he called me and he said, "Mama, would you please?" And I hung the phone up and I went out to the barn and I said to Carl, you know, I'm going to go get that kid. I don't give a rip. I don't care. I'm not, I, 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 I can't live, I can't lay down in my bed tonight knowing he's cold and hungry. I'm going after him. And my husband looked at me and he just said to me simply, June, you just go do whatever it is you have to do. And I got in that car and I started down the road and I made it about five miles. And I was crying and I was arguing with God. And see, when I'm out of God's will, I always start doing that justifying, rationalizing like we do. And I started arguing with God and telling God what I had to do. And I pulled the car over after about five miles and I called my sponsor. And I've got a black belt Al-Anon sponsor today and her name's Billy. And i got an added extra thing to that. i got a black belt AA member, her husband. He's been sober about 30 years and he's my prayer warrior and he helps me every step of the way and he answered the phone 
And I said, Bob, I'm going after that kid, and don't tell me not to go because I'm going. I'm, I, I can't live like this. I can't stand it. And Bob, in that soothing voice of his, he said, June, 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 June. Now you turn that car around here and you go on back home. And you leave that little boy in the hands of a loving God and the people of AA. He'll find a warm spot for the nights out. And I was able to do that. I was able to turn my car around and go on back home and leave my boy alone. And he found a spot. I've often wondered how long he stood on that corner before he gave up. After I got back home, the phone rang two or three times and it was a collect call from him and I hung up. And it haunts me sometimes. I wonder how long he stood there and he waited for me to come for him before he gave up. And our mind plays such crazy tricks with us. You know, I can see him walking down the hill to that mission and they let him in about 11 o'clock that night. And so he found a warm spot that night, I found out. And I went home and I laid in the arms of my husband that night who loved me and held me and let me cry. And my husband said something to me that night that was so profound that I hope I never forget it. And he said to me, you know, June, as you drove out that driveway that night, he said, I said to myself, I believe if I was June, and if I went and got that kid, I don't believe I'd go give any more of them talks because you ain't walking like you're talking. And boy, that was stout. That was stout. And I knew he was right. I knew he was right. And so I was able to leave my boy up there, and he lived in them streets the rest of that year. That was in February. He lived in the streets the rest of that year. And on about the 18th day of, of December of that year, he called, and he said, Mama, I haven't had a drink in a few days, and I'm going into the mission I'm going to try to sober up. And they've got a bed for me, but it won't be ready for six days. Will you let me come home? And I let him come home. And he came home and he spent Christmas with us. And I didn't tell Carl how to act. And I didn't tell nobody else how to act. We all just acted however in the world we wanted to. And we got, we got in an ice storm and got snowed in. And I'm going to tell you right now, before it was over, we were all about ready to kill each other. But, <laughs> but I carried him up there to that mission. And he lived in that mission for two for six months and he came out and he got a little job and he went to school and he's making jewelry and my boy <laughs> I talked to him Friday morning before I left and um, and he's got two and a half year two and a half years now sobriety because he came to you people and he walks with you and you hold his hand and you told him what to do and in spite of his mama he's got two and a half years behind him see my kids have done very well in spite of their mama Mike's doing well. He's going to meetings. He's, he's going and hunting up people under the bridges, and he's helping them out that need help. He goes, in the, he goes where he knows the homeless sleep, and he gets them, and he helps them out. And that's what God gave him to do. My oldest boy, Pat, they call him doctor today. He's very successful, and his little daughter have just got that one girl. She got married the other day, and she's doing her master's program over at Springfield, Missouri. Regina went to law school, and she's working in a treatment center down at she didn't do law. She got her degree as a paralegal. She left law school after uh, three semesters, and she's just working in a treatment center and helping people that was once like her that need the help. Me and Carl um, were sweethearts again, you know. And uh, we don't have to hide things from one another no more, and I don't have to blame Carl for nothing no more. I just have to love him and thank God every day that he gave me this man to love me and love my kids in spite of us. And... Um, and when my kids come home today, Carl don't run them off. He's proud to see them. And I know that tomorrow's Father's Day, and the two that live, Pat lives in St. Louis, Regina's in Little Rock, 
they're going to be calling their daddy. But Mike said to me, Friday, Mama, I'm going to go see Daddy on Father's Day. And I know that he will. And these are the gifts that was given to us by the programs, combined programs of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon. The, the very precious gifts that was given to us. And it talks to me in my little book here. It says, He has delivered my soul in peace from the battles that were against me, and there were many with me. And that right there just kind of tells my story. And I think of the things that John the Indian said when he said, just because people don't love, say what you want them to say or act like you want them to act does not mean they don't love you. What it means is you don't understand. So pray for understanding. And so that's what I try to do today. See, my cup is full today, and I drink from the saucer most days. I know what that means, a heart full of thanksgiving and attitude. I know about that because I walk with it, because you all have given it to me. See, I don't have to, when I get up in the morning, I don't have to walk in that pride and arrogance I once walked with because you have taught me I can walk in gratitude and humility. And when I lie down tonight, I don't have to lie down in fear. I can lie down in faith because you all have taught me this way of life. You see, I was, um, I think that 2,000 years ago when that man stood up there on that mountaintop, and told those people and laid that set of principles down to those people how they could live in love and companionship with one another. I think it's no accident that that strongly, strongly resembles these 12 steps. See, I believe with all my heart that this program is divinely inspired. I think it is a God-inspired program. I think God really divinely inspired Bill Wilson when he gave him those, that, the, the knowledge to write those 12 steps because there ain't nobody that smart. There's nobody smart enough to write down 12 little simple things that thousands of lives can be changed. And I think it, that's what I think about it. Y'all can think whatever you want to about it. That's just my opinion. I, I'm not doing it. <laughs> When we rode them cutting horses all the time, I was the turn-back help, and the turn-back help sets out in front of the cutter and, and gets yelled at. And a lot of verbal abuse if you're his wife. It really gets thick, and uh, I just got sick of it. I just got sick of it. I, all I was doing was cleaning stalls, washing horses, getting verbally abused. At right, it wasn't ever in the right spot at the right time. So I just decided that I wanted to do the deal. I wanted to show a, mare, a horse like Carl did. I got to go to all the shows, but I got to work my hind end off, and so... Carl bought me this little old mare, and, and man, she was well-bred mare, and she was well-trained mare, and, and Carl sent me, I had the spurs and the hat and the shaps and the boots and the jeans and the saddle and all the stuff you have to have to ride, and a uh, cutting horse, and uh, so Carl sent me over to the old master, and he lived over at Tecumseh, Oklahoma, and his name was Pat Patterson, and Mr. Pat had won lots of awards that said he was cutting horse man of the year, he was very well known in the in the circle of NCHA, and, and um so Carl sent me over there to stay with that old man, and I loved him to death. He was a gruff old man, and and um, but he was so kind with me. And uh, I would get scared, and I would I would fall off, and I would do wrong. And and old Pat never, he never ate me out or bawled me out. He just gently uh, scolded me and gently set me back up on the saddle and set me back on the right path. And and so the day arrived that it, I could go show that mare at a cutting, and I went over to Shawnee, Oklahoma. It was the first time I ever got to show her, and. And I rode in there that day, and lo and behold, my teacher was there, and my teacher was old Mr. Pat, and, and he rode up to me, and he called me off the side, and he said, now at the cutting, there's, there's these two people that sit out here in front of 
you and that's the turn back help and then there's one on either side and that's the herd holders and they hold that herd in there to keep them from just swarming on you once you get your your cow cut and um, and keep keep you from getting in a swarm and so mr pat called me off the side and he said to me now june i want you to listen to me now you know how to ride that mare you can do a real good job and here's what i need you to do you need to scrooch way down in there on your pocket girl you get down in that deep seat of that saddle and you take on that horn and you relax. And you put that mare's head down and don't try to help that mare. You let that mare work. You trust that mare. Don't try to help her. You just sit up there and ride. And if you'll just listen, I'm going to be sitting over in this corner and Carl's going to be in that corner and we're going to talk you through this. Yeah, we're going to talk you through it, June. And I thought about that one time when I was standing up at a podium like this and things come to your mind. And I thought about that and I thought, shoot, Carl, that's the whole blooming deal, you know. My God has sent me to the old masters and that's y'all. He's given me the best set of tools known to man. That's these tapes we listen to and these books that we read. He's given me all these things. And he says to me on a daily basis, now, June, I don't need you to help me. I need you just to relax and take a deep seat and give me my head and let me do the work. All I need for you to do, girl, is just listen, and I'll talk you through it. And Lord, 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 <laughs> he comes and he talks me through it every day. He talks me through whatever comes my way every day. And he'll talk you through it too, but you've got to ask him in. See, my God don't come in uninvited, and yours don't either. So you got to ask him in. And when you ask him in, he'll give you the solution to all your problems. God bless you all, and thank you so much.